Hi, I'm Maria Thea Harris-Lovellosos and welcome back to Socialist Tuesday, everyone. Stay listening. So Organised Style podcast acknowledges traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. Thanks for joining us on Socialist Tuesday where you'll find out what's happening in the world of socialists. Socialist, it's a sewing blog for everyone. Zero Waste Sewing is the first socialist theme month for 2021 running in February and it's quite fitting as many people tend to use the new year to rethink their sewing goals. This socialist podcast is one of two zero waste sewing podcasts we have developed to support you to take up the zero waste sewing challenge with us. So what's zero waste sewing? In short, it's making use of every bit of fabric in your project. It's good for the environment and it's good for your wallet too. In today's socialist podcast, I chat with a local Aussie, Liz Haywood, the author of her latest book, Zero Waste Sewing. In the next Socialist Podcast, I chat with Denise Archer about scrap-busting ideas and Denise also discusses the People Sewing Army. You'll find more details about both Liz and Denise's work on the Socialist blog. So, here are three easy ways you can join Zero Waste Sewing Month. The first one is sew a zero waste pattern. The second one is make a low waste garment. So low waste is in very little scraps. And the third way is to make a scrap busting project. When you do, use the hashtag socialist zero waste so we can see what you've achieved and that you'd like to be included in the end of month roundup on socialists. Now, if you are keen as mustard about zero waste sewing, we'll be looking for a total of six volunteers to write a post about a zero or low waste sewing project. Now look out for the call for contributors, which is coming soon on the Socialist website and Instagram account. Now on to today's podcast with Liz Haywood, the Australian author of Zero Waste Sewing. Liz's Zero Waste Sewing book was a recipient of a 2020 New York City Big Book Award in the craft and hobby category. Let's welcome Liz today. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. You're the first author that we've had and... We'll get into that part of your background, but again, I'm really pleased that you've given us your time today. Thank you. I usually ask our guests if they could tell us a bit more about their Instagram name. I'm not sure that we need to do that with you. Well, it's just my name. I'm Liz Haywood, 3574, but the numbers don't mean anything. Instagram assigned them to me when I opened the account. I didn't really know what I was doing. So Maybe I'm the 3,574th Liz Haywood in Instagram. I don't know. You're the most special one because you're on the podcast. That's what I like to think. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Liz, because we've both got Australian accents, would you give our listeners an idea about where you live? We live in South Australia's Clare Valley, which is two hours north of Adelaide. So if you imagine a map of Australia, we're in the middle at the bottom And the nice part about the Clare Valley, from my perspective, is the wines that come from that area. Yes, we're famous for Riesling outside Germany. (laughs) (laughs) So can you give our listeners some background of 
where you started sewing and what inspires you? I started sewing as a child on my great-grandma's turn-the-handle singer, which was given to me. It looked like exactly like the one in the movie The Dressmaker, but not electric. It had the same case and everything. And it belonged to my great-grandma, who was a milliner, and then she moved up to a, a newer model and gave it to my grandma, who didn't really sew. And then when my grandmother moved house to a nursing home, it came to our family and my mother gave it to me. And now my daughter has it. And mum showed me how to use it and then sort of left me to my own devices. And I could pull that thing apart with a screwdriver and put it back together again. And so I learned how to sew with my left hand quite a lot because I was turning the handle. And so my mum sewed. She went off to stretch sewing classes on Thursday nights with her Elna Lotus, leaving dad to put us all to bed. And she sewed probably until I was about a teenager. So when I became a teenager in the 80s, I started making my own clothes and mum kind of stopped sewing then. But she has started again since. I got a Saturday morning job at Bargain Box Fabrics. I highly recommend if you're planning to study fashion to try and get a job in a fabric shop because it will expose you to a whole lot of different types of fabric and you have access to great advice from the other staff and customers and the staff discounts very handy too. Oh, yes. So I finished high school and I enrolled in fashion at TAFE and trained as a pattern maker. So this was 1990 and 1991. We were sort of on the doorstep of going to offshore manufacturing. Can I ask, when you went to TAFE, for our listeners, TAFE is a trade school. Yeah. Which TAFE did you go to? It was Marston TAFE in Adelaide, but it's not there anymore. Okay. And fashion courses are different now to the one I did. So the focus now, I think, is more on design and business, but ours was a lot more manufacturing focused. And some of the more artistic types fell by the wayside in the first couple of weeks when they realised that we were doing industrial sewing machine maintenance and more factory things. And that makes sense because we were doing a lot of manufacture in Australia at the time, whereas we're not anymore. It's been offshored. We were, but I'm glad I had that kind of classical training, if you like, because I I think it really helped later on. So I was there for two years. I took the second year specialising in pattern making, and I really loved it because I enjoyed drawing and maths and problem solving, and it was the perfect combination. So I was really fortunate to find something that I loved doing early on. And when I finished... I got a job at Atlantis Clothing Company in the city and a friend in my class was working there and they needed someone else and so she recommended me. So Atlantis was what's known as a cut make trim or CMT place. Right. So we did manufacturing for other places. So for fashion designers who'd already done their designs and patterns and samples. And we also made ladies wear for department stores like pencil skirts and things like that. I was employed as a junior cutter and my job was to cut and bundle work for the unregistered non-English speaking Vietnamese outworkers to sew at home. Hmm. This job was a bit of an eye-opener for me. It was the most poorly run, unethical and intimidating place I've ever had the misfortune to work at. More mistakes happen in this factory than any other factory I've worked in. Buttonholes got put on the wrong side of garments. Wrong fabrics got cut. Garments got sewn inside out because the maker didn't know which was the right side of the fabric. Garments were ruined from overpressing or we ran out of fabric and the roof leaked when it rained and if we'd left a lay on the table overnight, all the fabric was wet in the morning. My boss was involved in shonky business deals and he owed people money and they would turn up to get paid and he would run and hide in the ladies' toilets. Jeez. I was only 19, so it was a bit of an eye-opener. Yeah. On paydays, on Fridays, 
back then, as you know, we didn't have electronic banking. So you got paid either by check or you got cash in an envelope with a little pay slip in there. Yes. But he was never organised with the pay slips and the cash. And so we'd have to hang around for hours waiting to get paid when we should have gone home. And he was also a bit of a sleaze. He would try and ask us all the time to model bodysuits for him, which we were making. But, you know, like we were ever going to do that. So we passed it off as a joke. And when his back was turned, we nearly threw up at the thought. Oh, God. So the kind of things we made were stirrup pants in black navy or tartan and swing coats and chiffon shirts and three-quarter length box pleated skirts and body suits. We did zillions of these things. And those jewel-coloured shoulder-padded suits, the kind that take you from the office to after-work cocktails, you know, the kind. So eventually, after six months there, I hadn't been paid for two weeks, and so I left. And I went back to try and get my money, and the doors were locked, and there was a chain and padlock through the handles. And I looked through the dusty glass, and he'd done a moonlight flit. He'd taken all the stock and all the equipment. The place was just empty. I never saw him again. It's a terrible thing to experience. I don't think we were a sweatshop, but it was a good example to me of how not to do things. Yes. But luckily, I got another job very shortly afterwards as a cutter and pattern maker at Gem Leotards, which is now called Gem Designs in Adelaide. And it's still run by the same family, which is really great. And they did offer really great service. And anyone in Adelaide who has done ballet or calisthenics might have got shoes or clothes from there. So the factory was behind the shop. And a great example of a manufacturing business that adapted and survived. And it was a really interesting place to work. And the people there were quite remarkable. So they made a huge range of things in stretch fabrics, like fashion swimwear, aerobics and gym wear. If you remember back in the early 90s, aerobics was big. And perhaps people were just starting to wear leggings as clothes, not exercise clothes and sports uniforms and school bathers and ballet clothes, cycling nicks, calisthenics costumes. And do you remember parachute tracksuits? Yes. They were big, weren't they? You only have to think back to the first episodes of Neighbours. And I think they wore them a lot. Yes, people wore them to and from the gym and just to wear. Mm -hmm. I remember the first pair of parachute tracksuit pants I ever saw. A friend's flatmate had brought them back from America and we'd never seen anything like it because... Tracksuit bottoms were made from knit fabrics up until then, and this was just so new. And he was desperate to have a pair. (laughs) So Jem also took on unusual special orders. Once we did leotards for circus trapeze artists, they did their own sequining, but we did the lycra parts. And they posted us their old costumes and we copied them. And then when the order was ready, we had a phone number to ring to find out an address to send them to because they were on tour. Another time we got a government tender to supply police scuba rescue bathers. Mm. And once we made a V-shape bather like Sherwar, you know, in turn back time. Oh, yes. Yes, but this one was in hot pink. You couldn't see through it. No, but there wasn't, wasn't much around it. I didn't do that one and I didn't ask too many questions. And once we made a large lycra catsuit for a motorbike rider to wear over his levers, He was doing a race with a new sponsor and he needed new colours, but custom bike leathers are very expensive. So it was better to wear this over the top of what he already had. It was still expensive, but much cheaper than leather. Among our nicest customers were women who'd had breast cancer who came in to buy mastectomy bathers. We made those too. And the bathers have a pocket at the front for their prosthesis. 
And we also made swimwear prostheses so their regular ones didn't get ruined by chlorine. They were made from bra cups, like rigid bra cups that were stuffed. And some people preferred them to their regular prosthesis and wore them all the time. And our pickiest customers were bodybuilders who ordered posing briefs and bikinis for their competition. And they would spend forever in front of the mirror looking at themselves from every angle. And it surprised me that people with such amazing bodies seemed so dissatisfied, yet women who'd had both breasts chopped off weren't. That's such a contrast, isn't it? Yes. It made me think a lot about body image. I started at the bottom at GEM, so as well as pattern making and cutting, I swept up the cutting area and I put patterns away and I did unpicking for machinists and any job no one else wanted to do. On Monday mornings, I clean the toilets. It sounds like you were in that job, you enjoyed the environment, they were supportive and you were more than happy to do anything, even clean the toilets, like you said. I like to think I had a good attitude. (laughs) (laughs) You did. I was young. (laughs) I was the junior and that's what juniors did. When we got a new junior, I passed the baton on. Good. I left Gem Leotards to travel. And when I came back to Australia, I got a job in a school uniform factory in Adelaide to fund my new travel habit. (laughs) But this time I was a senior cutter, one of two working there. I admit I found this job rather unstimulating. We cut mainly wind cheaters and polo shirts in navy green and maroon and school dresses. And like all factories, it was little more than a shed. Besser block walls, corrugated roof with no ceiling, boiling hot in summer, freezing cold in winter, concrete floors, cold taps in the bathrooms, open roller doors all the year round. The people who worked there, though, were really great. And some had had hard lives, but they all worked really hard. So while I was working here, I actually cut the tip of my finger off. But luckily, it didn't go all the way through and I didn't need stitches. But it's never been the same. Not even... 20 years later. Jeez. It's like Harry Potter's scar. It throbs sometimes. (laughs) So after 18 months of cutting school uniforms, I moved to London and got a job as a pattern maker at a fashion temping agency. I absolutely loved it. I couldn't believe that there was a whole agency just devoted to fashion jobs and there was more than one and there was a shortage of pattern makers. So we're in the mid-90s now. This is London in the mid-90s. This is the time of Cool Britannia and Princess Diana, and the Spice Girls. And London was a hip centre of fashion, rivalling Paris. So I I look back on that time as a really golden time. I eventually returned to Australia and worked for six weeks at a badly run bridal studio that that really rivaled Atlantis Clothing Company for being Mm -hmm. poorly run. I left when I didn't get paid. I got a new job at a factory that made corporate uniforms in Adelaide. They employed about a dozen staff, And they supplied uniforms for banks and credit unions and hospitals, nursing homes, small businesses that needed uniforms. So I was one of two cutters and we cut out clothes either with scissors or small cutting machines. When a business, like say a hospital, had put in their initial order, they ordered hundreds and hundreds of garments. We didn't do those. We cut garments when they had new employees or uniforms wore out and they just needed a couple at a time. So we had to make sure the uniforms were going to match the ones they already had. So we had very detailed records of exactly what each company had for their uniform and how we cut it. There was a lot of polyester in that factory because uniforms had to be easy care and foolproof. People were harsh on their uniforms and they got worn every day and they got chucked in the machine. We made nurses' collots and blouses and skirts and trousers, just standard kind of uniforms. I estimate that in the five years I was there, I cut 
over 10,000 garments. And I used a piece of tailor's chalk every two weeks. And I actually wore out a pair of scissors. And I actually wore out my wrist too. One morning I injured my wrist and I was off work. And while I was off work, I got offered a new job. So I decided I was never going to work as a cutter again. So my new job was as a pattern maker for fashion designer Suzanne Cole in her studio. And my new job was glamorous compared to a factory. I think Suzanne was Australia's first fashion designer who did only evening wear. She started in the 80s making ball gowns for David Jones and George's in Melbourne and other boutiques. And she had worked for Carolyn Charles, the English designer who made clothes for the royal family. But when I worked for her, she didn't do ball gowns anymore. That was so 80s. <laughs> when I was there, she made wedding gowns, race wear and special occasion clothes and very smart casual clothes. And she sold direct to her customers by then. And she was very good at interpreting styles to look good on her customers. Most of her customers were over 50 and large. And she was very fond of saying, oh, you know, it's easy to design for 20-year-old skinny catwalk models in countries with access to great fabrics, but it's much harder in Adelaide designing for real women. I was good at my work when I started at Suzanne's, but she brought me up to a whole new standard. She got design inspiration from runway magazines and regular magazines like Vogue. We liked it when there was a European royal wedding because there were lots of fashion shots of guests in the magazines, and we especially liked Hello magazine. She bought end-of-roll designer fabrics to use and got inspiration from her fabrics as well. So she started with a fabric and designed from the fabric. So I got to work with a whole lot of fabrics I probably wouldn't normally have worked with. We had ends of rolls from Chanel and Versace and Paul Smith and that kind of thing. At the time I was working for her, my husband and I decided to paint the inside of our house. And I've always had access to rags from working in cutting departments because anyone can help themselves from the scrap bins because it was going to get thrown out. But at Sue's, we had a better class of paint rags. So we painted with Roberto Cavalli paint rags. (laughs) Sue was cutting back her work with a view to retirement. So I was needed for less hours a week. So I started doing part-time work for other designers. And I got a job at a dressmaker's I made patterns for Sally Phillips, who is an Adelaide designer. Interestingly, Sally Phillips designed by doing the design and then finding the fabric to go with it, opposite of the way Sue designed. Sally liked details, tabs and pockets and flaps and frills and chose plain fabrics and a lot of neutrals. So I was now freelance and in an attempt to have some kind of weekly flow of income, I got a job as a sewing teacher, which I'd never done before, but they took a chance on me and it worked out. I found teaching sewing to be a huge learning curve and I found it very difficult to start with. Because I had been around trained, skilled workers for so long, I'd sort of forgotten what it was like to learn how to sew. But everyone in the class was really wonderful and really fun to be around and they were very adventurous with their sewing and they weren't afraid to try new methods or gadgets. And I found their enthusiasm really refreshing. And some students were absolute beginners and some were there for the social atmosphere. And often they would ask me if I could recommend a comprehensive sewing book. And the best I could suggest was the Reader's Digest Complete Guide to Sewing, Mm -hmm. 1977 edition, still considered the best. And the Reader's Digest is a great book, by the way. I have a copy. We did too. We had one in our family growing up, 1977 version. So I should just add that this was 2006 by now. We had websites and blogs, as you know, but only a fraction of what's on the internet now. There was no Pinterest or Instagram or apps or Twitters. And YouTube and Etsy were both a year old and Facebook was only two. 
And I thought, oh, hmm, I'd like to do a book. I think I could do that. I think I would like to. I sort of thought it might take a year. I started with a list of chapters and notes, and I had to think about what I really wanted in a sewing book. And what I really wanted was loads of pictures, the more the better. And I liked line drawings compared to photos because I think they're a little clearer. And I wanted it to be generous and practical and friendly. I felt as well as sewing, there should be fitting and pattern making in there. I feel with sewing clothes, you need a holistic approach. Rather than just present a technique on its own, you have to have it in the context of making a garment. And this eventually became The Dressmaker's Companion. And I don't know if you know, The Dressmaker's Companion is a self-published book. Did you know that? No, I didn't. From the beginning, I was adamant I wasn't going to self-publish. Because if you're like me, you hear the word self-publish and you think, this person couldn't find a real publisher. This book must not be very good. And they've probably got boxes of books in their garage that no one wants, full of typos. And the book probably looks lame. But it turned out that none of these things came to pass because the world of self-publishing was to change radically in the 10 years that it took me to produce this book. So I chipped away at it part-time and my writing and drawing skills improved dramatically. I worked on it for probably two days a week for 18 months and then we had children and I probably spent two evenings a week on it. And on reflection, maybe this part-time approach worked well because I had plenty of thinking time in between writing time while I changed nappies and cooked and went to playgroup and folded clothes. So I did this for about seven years and by then we had two children and we'd moved to the Clear Valley. When it was finished, because I didn't want to self-publish, I looked around for publishers. So I did get a publishing contract for it. I submitted it to 12 publishers and got nine rejections, one contract offer and two no replies. But I heard that Harry Potter got 22 rejections. So at that point, I was actually ahead of JK Rowling. (laughs) But now I'm 400 million books behind her. In the end, I decided not to take the publishing contract. I decided to self-publish because I thought that it would be in my best interests. Now that you've gone through the process of self-publishing, what would you advise our listeners if they're thinking about writing a book and going down the self-publishing route? If you're listening to this and you're thinking of self-publishing, it will be a big learning curve. It will take you quite a lot of time, but you can do it. It's possible. Liz, so you've published The Dressmaker's Companion and most recently you've published your next book, which is called Zero Waste Sewing. Liz, how did you discover zero waste sewing? I discovered zero waste pattern making when I read about it in the book Zero Waste Fashion. This was about a year before The Dressmaker's Companion was published. And I love the idea of zero waste and I immediately clicked with it because I had seen the amount of waste that factories produce. And I just want to say factories don't waste fabric on purpose. They are extremely conscious of fabric utilisation. But I remember in factories trying to get rid of the waste we would jump on the bins to try and pack it down to get rid of all the fabric scraps. I've worked in probably more than 10 factories and of those, only one sold their scraps. The rest got sent to landfill. And the one that sold their scraps, they didn't sell all their scraps. They just sold a small percentage of them. And I only worked in fairly small factories and there was a lot of waste. Often factories don't have a lot of control over the amount of waste they make because the design's already been made by the fashion designer. Right. They're just the makers, so they don't have control over the fabric or the design or the size of the pattern pieces. And so with that experience that you've had in factories and the fact that you read Zero Waste Fashion Design, that clicked in your mind to get yourself organised to do zero waste sewing. 
I didn't immediately. I, no. I was excited by the idea and I started experimenting with my own patterns. But after The Dressmaker's Companion, I swore I'd never write another book again because <laughs> it nearly broke me. But I got over it and I wondered, so, so say a year after The Dressmaker's Companion, I wondered if anyone would write more about zero waste patterns. I wondered if there would be more books on the subject. And then I thought, hey, maybe that person could be me. I know how to make patterns and write instructions and I know how to publish books. So I started writing Zero Waste Sewing mid-2018 and it came out in March on the eve of lockdown. But you just can't predict these things six months ahead. You can't. (laughs) (laughs) Since Zero Waste Sewing came out, I now write PDF Zero Waste Patterns and I find I prefer the format to a book because I'm not restricted to a certain number of pages so I can put more in them and they're available instantly. So now that you are designing zero waste patterns as PDFs, how are zero waste patterns designed? Zero waste patterns are designed a bit differently from how we regularly design patterns because the pattern and the layout have to be designed at the same time. That's what makes it zero waste. So normally how we would design clothes is the designer makes a sketch and then the pattern maker translates it into a pattern and then a different person perhaps makes a cutting layout. Mm. But zero waste clothes are designed as the pattern is created. So the outcome is actually unknown until the pattern is made. You might just have a loose sort of design brief inspired by the fabric. So you might say, with this drapey fabric, we are going to make a dress with a draped skirt or With this linen, we are going to make a jumpsuit with lots of pockets or with this wool, we are going to make a coat with an amazing collar. You have a rough idea of where you're heading, but you don't really know what the outcome is going to be until it's finished. And the key is not to have set ideas on the exact outcome. It is really hard to make a zero waste pattern to a traditional fashion sketch. I tried making zero waste jeans and it was really hard and ultimately I failed on the zero waste part, but not by much. I could probably do it better if I did it again. That is one reason why zero waste isn't used very much in the fashion industry because it's so different to how we design clothes now. Designing zero waste clothes requires a fashion designer to also be the pattern maker or at least have a knowledge of pattern making. And an experience of cutting layouts is needed because the designing, the pattern making and the cutting layout all happen together. So the designing actually happens as the pattern and the layout develop. This doesn't mean that fashion designers are now redundant and pattern makers take over. It's more like the design process is a collaboration led by the designer. But designing this way can be a hard path to embrace because you can't control the destination. It's unpredictable. And serendipity, making fortunate discoveries by accident, plays an important part in zero waste pattern making. So it's by doing and seeing what emerges that brings the design direction rather than making a sketch and handing it to the pattern maker to make a pattern for it. It definitely sounds like a different way of thinking, but you still need those skill sets. Yes, you do. Because I have those skills and I'm a one woman show, I can do it. But it would be harder if you had a fashion business because jobs in fashion are traditionally quite specialized. And so everyone would need to have the focus of zero waste and there would need to be a lot more collaboration. I kind of answered why we don't use it much in the fashion industry. That's why, really. Yeah, you have. So on the shop floor, where everyone has different skills, their focus has to be on zero waste and they collaborate together. Yes, but that gets hard if you're manufacturing offshore Mm. because the place offshore does your layouts. The factory does that. And perhaps your pattern maker might be even in another country too. 
So the bigger the business, I think the harder it is if you want to switch to zero waste. Probably a commitment to zero waste from the start is the easiest way to be a zero waste fashion business. Are there any benefits to a zero waste pattern apart from not wasting fabric? Yes, not wasting fabric is the obvious benefit, but there are some other great things about zero waste patterns. By not wasting anything, we get the full use of what we do have. And I have been pleasantly surprised by just how economical zero waste clothes are with fabric. In my experience, they use the same as or less fabric than regular clothes of the same type, but almost always less and sometimes significantly less, like a third less, not just centimetres. That's better usage of the fabric. Yeah, so that has big potential in fashion. And another benefit of zero waste pattern making is as a design tool. So we all know that constraints bring about creativity. And this was unexpected for me, but it's quite an exciting aspect of zero waste clothes. You can get some very innovative pattern cutting when you have the constraint of zero waste. You have to think out of the box. And it makes for more creative pattern making and more interesting clothes because some of the details and silhouettes that are brought about, you might not have come to those if you'd just done a traditional fashion sketch. Another benefit is the cutting time is very quick because zero waste has shared lines. So every time you do a cut, you're separating two pattern pieces. You're not cutting around individual pattern pieces. You're just cutting through. So cutting time is very quick, but you have to be accurate. So as a home sewer... When I put patterns onto fabric, I always have to follow the selvage or the grain. Yeah. Is that a rule that zero waste sewing or patterns also follows? Uh, The grain is important, whether it's zero waste or not. Often I cut across the fabric in the same way that you might do if you're making a border print dress and you want the border on the bottom, you cut it around the other way. Yeah. Often I do that because it makes it easier to make more sizes in zero waste. It's easy to make a zero waste pattern in just one size, but it's much harder if you want to do a range of sizes because, as you know, when we grade clothes from smaller to bigger sizes, it's not like putting a pattern piece on a photocopier and pressing 150%. Pieces grow in different proportions, so our our necks don't grow as much as our waist. So the pattern pieces actually change shape as well as get bigger, so they don't necessarily fit back together well. So I often cut fabric around the other way. So the selvage is at the hem and at the shoulders, for example, on a dress. And that way I can make it wider without being constrained by the width of the fabric. I don't always do it that way, but I often do. Okay. Because you have to think about how you're going to make all the sizes at the same time as you make the pattern. You can't just grade the pieces afterwards and hope they fit back because they won't. The sizing has to be thought about as you're making the pattern. You have to put in ways to accommodate multiple sizes And size inclusivity is important to me and I strive to make 12 sizes in my zero waste patterns, which is hard, but I'm a grading geek. (laughs) In the world of pattern making, there's a subculture of grading and people who like it and I'm one of those. (laughs) And that's good because it also complements the fact that you value inclusivity in sizes. I do. Yeah. Liz, Now that you've developed some zero-waste patterns, what challenges did you face when you designed your first zero-waste pattern? Well, I wondered if making zero-waste patterns would be difficult. But when I tried it, I didn't find it difficult. I found it to be exciting and unexpectedly freeing because normally pattern makers have a sketch or a photo to adhere to or sometimes 
to my displeasure, are asked to rip a pattern off a finished garment. And although the design is discussed with the fashion designer, it's usually pretty much final. So therefore, it's exciting to watch the pattern develop around the other way from usual. So rather than make a pattern to match an idea, the idea comes as the pattern is made. It's sort of like comparing creative writing to journalism. So not knowing the outcome adds an element of risk and excitement, but at the same time, I feel confident that everything will come together and all fit and design issues will be resolved. That is the other challenge with zero waste. There's no point in making a zero waste pattern if it doesn't look good or if it doesn't fit properly. Fit and appearance are important. While zero waste is a worthy goal, you can't neglect fit and appearance. Otherwise, what's the point? I found the more zero waste patterns I do, the easier it becomes. It's like changing the way you think. I find it's a different mindset. And the more I do, the more my brain finds it easier to find solutions. I actually have a question from Sue Stoney because she ah. has been using your book. Her question is, where do you get your inspiration for your zero waste patterns? Well, I have a sketchbook. And when I get an idea, I write it in a sketchbook because I find that it starts from an idea. Sometimes the idea comes as part of a challenge. For example, could I make a top from an exact perfect square of fabric and not waste any? So it's like a mini challenge within the zero waste challenge. And sometimes I see people wearing clothes on the street or in magazines or books. And I, I think I, I bet I could make that zero waste. So I do a sketch in my sketchbook and I do maybe a little cutting layout to show how I would do it. And I keep that idea for later on. And then I find my, my sketchbooks are my source of ideas. So if we have to evacuate for bushfire, I'm taking the sketchbooks. So I find I can get ideas by looking back through things I've recorded. Highly recommend keeping a sketchbook. So I've been keeping sketchbooks since about 2002. So I'm on to about number nine at the moment, but now I keep a specific zero waste sketchbooks. Probably I go through about one a year. So how many of those books do you think you have now? I've got, I'm on to number three for zero waste. I use, um, I like A4 visual artists, spiral bound books. I only ever use pencil. I'm not bold enough to use pen. Using pencil rather than pen means that you are continually being flexible. Yeah, we can rub it out. So you've invested a lot of time into zero waste patterns. Do you see that zero waste pattern making could be the future of fashion? Well, I don't know. It's early days yet. While zero waste is a very old idea, it's new for manufacturing and it's still being experimented with by pattern makers and manufacturers. And it has quite a few challenges. The biggest one being it's just so different from how we design now. And change is hard to do. It's one way that we can help make fashion more sustainable. And I think it has great potential, both in saving the amount of fabric that we use for garments and also preventing waste. And reducing landfill. Yes. Yes, reducing landfill. I wonder if we will see real change when this generation of fashion designers moves through. The way fashion is manufactured now is not conducive to zero waste. At the moment, but I see this generation of fashion designers, they're going to be the change makers. They think differently. I feel like I'm very much a product of my training, but they, they think in new ways and they, they do sustainability studies as part of their course. And it's just so different. So I really... I'm very hopeful for the future. So am I. I'm a traditional home sewer 
and I've never tried zero waste patterns before. What advice would you give me if I want to try it? If you're looking for a new sewing adventure, if you want to eliminate scraps from your sewing room, why not try a zero waste pattern? Because you'll be encouraged to think beyond how perhaps we normally cut and construct clothes. And I'll be contributing to being a sustainable sewer, being kinder to the environment and not adding to landfill. Not all zero waste patterns are the same. Uh, Mine are drawn straight onto the fabric in the instructions, but others are printable PDF patterns like you have for a regular pattern, except that you're printing the whole layout. If you're looking for a new sewing adventure and you want no scraps in your sewing workroom, maybe you're sewing yourself a slow wardrobe. Consider giving a zero waste pattern a whirl. Liz, thanks for being on Socialist Podcast about zero waste sewing today. We're so fortunate to have an Australian designer like yourself who is exploring zero-waste sewing for us and creating great sewing patterns so that we can try our hand at zero-waste sewing and follow through with our values of zero-waste. All the best. Thank you very much for the opportunity. My pleasure. Thank you. And have a lovely day, listeners. This episode of Sew Organised Style Podcast for Socialist was produced for the Socialist team by me, Maria Theoharis, with permission of Gillian, sound by bensound.com. You can subscribe to Soul Organised Style Podcasts, but with an S, not a Z, on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and from all good podcast apps. Make sure that if you have some zero-waste ideas that you want to share with us on Socialist, that you go to the blog, which is thesocialist.com or send us a note on our Instagram account at socialists and let us know what zero waste example you've got to share with the sewing community. We look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time. Stay safe, everyone. This episode of Sew Organised Style Podcast for the Socialists was produced for the Socialist team by me, Maria Theoharis, with permission of the Socialist team. Sound by bensound.com. There are over 30 socialist podcasts already available from 2020 to listen to. If you've missed out on previous socialist podcasts, contact the socialist through their blog or Instagram account if you would like to contribute your zero waste sewing story. You can subscribe to Sew Organized Style Podcast, but with an S, not a Z, on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and from all good podcast apps. Contact Socialist via the blog, thesocialist.com, or on the Socialist Instagram account if you want to share your zero-waste sewing experience on The Socialist. We look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time. Stay safe, everyone.